0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, an instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State, and I am delighted to be joined today by Ken Ellingwood. Ken has reported stories around the world for the Los Angeles Times and is the author of First to Fall, Elijah Lovejoy and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery, which was released by Pegasus Books earlier this year. Ken, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us.
1: Really glad to be here.
0: So let's start um, with a little bit of an origin story here. Uh, how, how did Elijah Lovejoy come on to, to your radar? And, and what was the, the kernel that you saw that thought, oh, there's something here that's, that's worth exploring?
1: Well, I probably should have known more about Lovejoy than I did, um, having grown up in Maine, where he is from, but he didn't really, um, you know, leave a much of a mark on me until um, after I had uh, spent a long career at the L.A. Times, and um, we, uh, I, I left the, the paper uh, in, in 2012 and went to China um, because of my wife's job. And I found myself in a Chinese university as a, as a, as a teaching fellow. So I was, I was a guest there and teaching Chinese students about American journalism, including the history of American journalism, which they were very interested in my teaching, kind of to my surprise. So I used that as a way to talk about American history uh, and use journalism as this almost like a character in the, in the course of American history as a player. Um, Lovejoy, Elijah Lovejoy, uh, came up during a unit that we did on the antebellum period and slavery and the period you know leading up to the Civil War and looking at how newspapers were dealing with that um, and how some were speaking out against slavery. And to my delight, And surprised by students, the Chinese students um, raised, of course, in a regime where freedom of the press is, uh, you know, really it's there on paper, but it doesn't exist um, in a real way in China. uh, We're really taken by Lovejoy's story, and we 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 were we were doing a fairly short unit on on Lovejoy, but I was very um, struck by their reaction to him, and how they saw him really as a hero. And I wanted them to see that while they may think that Americans, you know, were born with a, you know, silver spoon in the mouth, that we were granted all these rights at the um, beginning of the country, that they actually had to be fought for over time. And I was hoping, and, and, it, and it worked really, that my students would see the Lovejoy story as a kind of a, maybe an inspiration to them um, to fight their own battles. And and so out of this uh, experience in a place where there isn't freedom of the press, I was inspired to dig deeper into a story that is about a hero of freedom of the press in America. And it got me digging into Lovejoy's life and story.
0: Yeah, and I I really enjoy how the the book is is sort of split between as you said telling Lovejoy's story and the kind of broader story of of press freedoms at that time, uh, and I want to you know definitely come back to the the press freedom side of things, but let's dig into Lovejoy's story um, a little more first. So he, as you said, grew up in. Maine, his family themselves were not slaveholders. Maine was not a, a slave state. So how did this issue come on to, to his radar? And and can you also talk about his his evolution? I understand he maybe started off at a more incrementalist view and then sort of became more radical. I don't know if that's the, the right mm-hmm. term over time, but he his, his views grew more more fervent over time, perhaps.
1: Yeah. So Love so let's set the let's set the period as well. Lovejoy was born in eighteen oh two And um uh, a town that is now called Albion in central Maine. And he grew up in a, in a very religious family. His father was a congregationalist minister. His mother was not formally trained, but was very, um, very well schooled in, in, in religion and was very devout and, um, and had grown up in a, in a household herself where she was, um, re- exposed to a lot of, of uh, biblical teaching. And so he, he grew up in a, in a, in a, in a family where there was a strong code of right and wrong and a strong sense of religious duty. And I think it was always sort of, you know, he was the eldest. It was always uh, in the back of his mind that he would probably go into the clergy at some point. He was a very smart kid, uh, learned to read very early and went on to... um, College at Waterville College, which is now Colby College in Waterville, Maine, and graduated at the top of his class. And then, like a lot of young uh, men at the time, uh, set out um, to the west to find his, you know, his future, and thinking he might somehow uh, make a living with words, you know, writing. He was a he was a poet and, and a writer, and he uh, took it seriously. So he ends up going to the Far West, <laughs> which at that time was the Mississippi River, which is St. Louis. And so, you know, it's the Midwest now, but at the time it was the frontier and it was where a lot of action was happening. A lot of uh, migration was taking place, both internal migration inside the United States, Americans moving to the West, but also foreigners coming from Europe and moving um, to that area too. So it was, a, it was an area of a lot of you know uh, turmoil, a lot of growth, a lot of activity and he wanted to be a part of that in part because of his religious beliefs. Um, and he believed as some of his elders back at Waterville College would have told him that this is an area in need of religious shepherding. <laughs> he becomes the editor of a newspaper there, a secular newspaper, nothing to do with religion whatsoever. Uh, and it was a very conventional newspaper at the time. It took a very strong political line. It favored the the Whig Party at the time, which is um, led by uh, or, or, you know, the embodied by Henry Clay. And um, and he was uh, not particularly interested in the slavery issue at first. And we're talking about maybe the late 1820s, 1830. He becomes um, more in, committed to, you know, his own religious um, health. And he um, experiences a religious conversion in St. Louis. It was a period when a lot of people were going to revival at meetings, and there were a lot of conversions at the time. Some camp meetings and 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 smaller sessions. And he was part of a, a smaller group. He goes to Princeton um, Theological Seminary. He decides that he will become a minister. And upon leaving Princeton, joins these two. Tech, these two uh, jobs, really, these two parts of himself. He's an editor and he's a minister. And he turns those two parts of himself into a into a hole when he goes back to St. Louis to run a religious newspaper, a Presbyterian newspaper called The Observer. And at the time, he doesn't take a very strong stance on slavery. At In, in his earlier role as a newspaper editor, um, for the secular newspaper, he he had really no interest in slavery. But he increasingly, in his time in St. Louis, becomes more um, interested in the issue. Remember, Missouri is a slave state. There is slave trading going on around him. He is, you know, witness to it. He is witness to, you know, um, people in chains being, you know, sold as um, as his property and put on boats down the river. So he becomes interested in the issue, but from a very kind of um, gradualist point of view, he was more interested in the the religious um, nourishment of enslaved people rather than, you know, outright liberation for them. Um, As time would go on, he would grow more fervent in his beliefs uh, that slavery was a first, you know, a curse, and then he saw it as a sin that had to be eradicated.
0: Right. And and that eventually drives him out of St. Louis, right, to Alton, Illinois.
1: Right. The, the messages that he begins to write in the St. Louis Observer are not well received in the city. I mean, this is a city that does a lot of trading with the South. It is really part of the South. And the uh, powers that be the elites in town uh, and many others saw him as a troublemaker and somebody who needed to be silenced as as his writings in the in the newspaper became more uh, fervent and as he began to uh, include the writings of abolitionist groups back east in his newspaper he was seen as a dangerous figure and it it, it you know we should it bears remembering here that abolitionists in general were seen as wild-eyed radicals. This is not uh, a period yet in the 1830s where you know, calling for the immediate end of slavery, calling for the liberation of two and a half million you know, people in chains was, was, um, was something that people were really, uh, other Americans who were really ready to talk about or, or, or tolerate. He was harassed his, um, uh, and threatened and it, was, it became clear that he couldn't stay in St. Louis and live to tell about it. Um, he moved with his um, wife and uh, infant son across the river to Illinois, to the city of Alton. Because Illinois is a free state, he figured that it would be, you know he would be free to write what he wanted to. And because it was a free state, he said at the time that he didn't really see, uh, a need necessarily to talk write about slavery all that much, well, as it turned out, he did continue to write about slavery, and as it turned out, being in a free state there along the the border right with the with this with the slavery south was really offered no more protection um, against the harassment and threats than he had in in St. Louis. He was back in the same boat again, under threat, uh, being harassed and being pressured on many sides by those who wanted him to stop writing about slavery.
0: Right. And this leads to his printing press being destroyed multiple times.
1: (laughs) Multiple times. He just would not give up. He just wouldn't get the message. Um, On the very day when he is moving to, from St. Louis to, um, to Illinois. He's announced it in the newspaper. He said, I'm leaving here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I see better prospects on the other side of the river. And he, uh, on that, on the, on the very day when he's announced that he's leaving that, you know, a a mob, you know, trashes his newspaper office. He manages to rescue the press and, and get it across the river to Alton where it, it is destroyed on the, on the river bank on the Alton side. So his, his, his welcome to Alton was, you know, hello, we've now destroyed your printing press and it's time for you to start again. He would lose three printing presses to mob attacks in the next year or so. Um, And each time his allies and friends there, his financial backers, would help him buy a replacement press. And as the, we're now in 1836 and into 1837, as the mob attacks grew more, um, severe, more, more threatening, really more dangerous to him. Uh, he declined to stop, you know, he declined to, to, to what they wanted, which is to stop writing about slavery. They made the same demands in Illinois as they had in St. Louis. And he just refused. He said, it is my right as an American, um, and as a, you know, product of, of God to, um, print what i want to print and this is what we this is what i i can do and i will continue to do it
0: right this this i think gets into the the free press aspects of, of of some of this i mean there's there is i think this this culture that you describe of of mobism at the time and people sort of taking the law into their own hands can you talk more about what what that was like and how common things like what love joy experience were for people in, in media at that time?
1: Yeah. First of all, there was, n- there was no period like this period of the 1830s and never has been since um, when it comes to mob violence, riots, and cor- orchestrated attacks by mobs. The high point was really of, the, of that was really the time when, when Lovejoy was coming under attack himself. He you know, kind of is an emblem, a <laughs> uh, victim of that. Um, there were many reasons for the rise in mob violence in America. And for one thing, there were really no police uh, in a lot of these places. It's certainly, you know, where he was out on the frontier, was, it was really kind of the Wild West. And um, and in other cities as well, there were, you know, inter-ethnic um, rivalries. There were, there were essentially gangs um, that fought against each other. There were, there were religious-based attacks. But the, the most common... The most frequent uh, target of mob violence were people who were um, trying to mobilize uh, sentiment against slavery. Abolitionists were the the leading target. And so you've got this this person um, speaking this belief in a place where it's unpopular at a time when the, the, the incidence of mob violence is at its absolute peak in American history. And so that's needless to say, a pretty bad combination of factors and he's you know he's alone so um, he wasn't the only one to suffer you know these attacks as I said there were there were anti-slavery activists even even in the north, even on the east coast you know it, it, it is easily forgotten or overlooked that, that um, there was a lot of, of pro-slavery sentiment uh, in the north as well um, and, just as racism as well. And so uh, there were a lot of people who wanted, in the North, who wanted uh, abolitionists to, um, you know, to be quiet, just as there was a lot of support for the anti-slavery movement in the North. But I think Lovejoy uh, shows, at least where he was geographically, that there was really little difference between being in a slave state and being in a free state uh, when they were both really so, so, so close together it was a, it was a pretty rough time.
0: Right. So if I could pause the, the historical narrative here for a second and bring us to, to the present, you know, people who talk about things like cancel culture for, for example, often talk about Twitter mobs and these types of things. And it feels to me that that word mob is chosen very deliberately to kind of evoke some of what you were just describing. I mean, knowing, knowing this history that you do and about what, you know, Things that people like Lovejoy went through. How do you think about you know people talking about you know mobs in the in this kind of present day social media context?
1: Well, you know, I'm a I'm a journalist and a First Amendment fan, and I tend to err on the side of expression. Um, there's a there's quite a difference between you know saying something on a social media and attacking somebody's body or home which is what he was facing at the time. So what concerns me more in the present day uh, context, I would say as a journalist and as a, um, uh, you know, somebody who has lived and had a career that was built on freedom of the press is the, is the climate that um, we have seen uh, develop around, um, you know, looking at journalists as the enemy, you know, um, we've just endured a presidency uh, where, you know, journalists were supposedly the enemies of the people, and where, you know, people who are free and independent journalists are you know, denigrated as, you know, as fake news, and where the whole point of, of, of independent, you know, journalistic inquiry um, is, is seen in some ways, you know, as unpatriotic. And that that's what worries me a lot more, um, to be honest. It's it's that the the practice of journalism. You know, look, I, I've worked in around the world, and I've worked in some very dangerous places, as as many of my colleagues have, and I admire them all for that. Um, we expect that <laughs> when you're in, you know. Uh, Covering a war in Iraq, you, you expect that there's risk. Um, you, you you know that um, when you are reporting on, you know, the drug war in Mexico, as, as I did, there are risks to that. There are people who don't want you to report things. They don't want you to go places. But what um, disturbs me is that the practice of journalism has become more dangerous in the United States. And you can see... In the um, coverage, um, the news coverage, the, the very honest, you know, earnest news coverage of the um, protests that we saw last year um, after the Floyd killing, that uh, journalists were attacked by authorities and they were needlessly, and it was obvious that they were being targeted. And so, I I am concerned that the climate has become. Uh, rather antagonistic toward, toward journalists and journalism. And I think the Lovejoy story, to go back to that, is a reminder to us that this, these freedoms are, are, are fragile. And um, we shouldn't take them for granted. And we, you know, people have sacrificed a lot to get us here. And we, we should protect that.
0: Right and I you also make the the point in the the book that um, you know a lot of the the sort of press freedoms from from a legal perspective uh, that we know like New York Times, v Sullivan and these cases were obviously not in place during lovejoy's time either. so can you th- talk more about what the, the the legal environment or perhaps lack thereof was uh, during his time?
1: One of the things that really impressed me is I you know, as I looked into Lovejoy's story and learned more about the context in which he was operating is that he was, he was, he was operating on faith, a, a belief that the press is free. And a lot of other editors of his time were doing the same thing. They didn't really have proof of that belief. That's why I say it was faith. Uh, there was a First Amendment, you right, into the Constitution, but it had never been really tested. No, There were no court rulings saying that you, know, you can do this and you can't do that. Um, the press is protected in this case. It's not protected in that. Those rulings that really kind of expanded the press's um, uh, ability to, 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 to do what we do really came in the 20th century. And in Lovejoy's time, there was just a belief that the press was free. and And newspaper editors at the time surely acted as if they were free. They wrote mean things about each other because the newspapers almost always had a partisan uh, attachment. And they threw, you know, um, insults at each other. They, they, they fought each other physically in the street at times. There were duels. I mean, it was a pretty rough trade being, (laughs) being a newspaper editor. Um, but you, you get out of this kind of free for all the sense that Hey, these guys—they they really believe that the—they pre- really believed in that the press is free. They really believe that they—they they can, you know, write what they what they want to write. Uh, and then you come to an issue like slavery, where suddenly, no, that's not the case. You know, they, they can't do that. So I ad- i admire Lovejoy, or I grew to admire him as I looked into him, and in his story because he was—he was operating in this gray area. There was yes, there was a First Amendment. But there were no real concrete uh, uh, decisions or or actions that that anybody could really point to to say, you are protected and you can can write what you you want to write. And really, when you look back at this, the abolition movement, the anti-slavery movement was really the first test of freedom of the press uh, and freedom of speech you know, the the, really first challenge to, um, to uh, about what that meant and how far, how far it extended.
0: Yeah. And there's, there's some interesting issues of, of federalism, right. Where the court said that, yes, the, the, the federal government cannot intervene as, as the first amendment dictates, but states are basically free to do whatever they want, which they did.
1: Correct. I mean, during his time, the states held sway whatever happened at the state level was really the dominant um, uh, ethos, right? Uh, The the, the states had libel laws, um, and they could uh, regulate what, or tried to, what what the press could say. What we we saw during the 1830s was a, a whole burst of laws passed by states in the South that, in order to protect slavery, they actually passed laws that outlawed the publication of any kind of materials, you know, newspapers or or pamphlets or anything that that challenged slavery, they they considered that to be um, uh, fostering or inciting insurrection uh, by enslaved people. So they outlawed it and they put severe you know penalties on it. So the states were really the you know. The 800-pound gorilla in, in in those times, and that would and that would remain the case until the passage of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War. That's when, really, the the rights that we see in the in the, in the Bill of Rights were were in a sense nationalized, if you will. Um, and so, in, in Lovejoy's time, he he and other editors were operating in a in a somewhat of a of a of an unclear um, uh, environment.
0: And, and were they also able to use the the postal service to, to get around some of this? I, I was thinking about that in, in just in terms of you know the, the kind of freedom that that brings versus our our environment today, where it's it's private companies that are responsible yeah. for what gets shared or, or not or disseminated or not.
1: You know, we 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 don't think about this, um, but the, the the press has owes a lot to the post office. <laughs> uh, For the early uh, success of the media, I mean, uh, the American people were already big fans of of newspapers even before independence, Um, and some newspapers played a role in the, you know, the quest for independence. News Americans were early Americans were really news news junkies, and um, they they loved their papers. And the post office, when the post office law was passed in the in the 1790s, you know, not long after the 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 country got started. the the news industry got a big boost because the the post office charged a very low price to move newspapers around. So what would happen is that editors would subscribe to each other's newspapers and they would mail them around to each other. So you'd have newspapers, bags and bags of newspapers stacked on wagons being moved around this new and expanding country uh, from one end to the other and it served as a kind of glue, you know, for the country. It had helped people in Missouri, for example, to know what was happening back in, you know, Virginia or, or, or you know, or Maryland or so. So it was, um, the, the post office played a big role in helping to foster a national trade in newspapers, even as early as, you know, as Lovejoy's time in the 1830s. And he he was getting newspapers. And, and part of what changed him what turned him into more of a um outspoken and more of a of an ambitious you know anti-slavery activist was what he was reading from newspapers that were coming from the east um, because he was really kind of alone out there on the frontier so the, the yeah the post office played a big role in in um moving the words around the country if you took a bag of of mail at the time and you you know you dumped it on the ground 90% Ninety percent of the weight of it would be newspapers. It's mm-hmm. really what was what we, what we were doing. The post office also came into play when the the uh, abolitionist organized abolitionist movement in the in the northeast tried to penetrate the South with um, journals and pamphlets that were mailed to um, to the South, and those were often intercepted, burned. Um, there was a there was a, a, a real controversy. Uh, over whether the, the abolitionist groups in the North should even be allowed to put those things into the mail. And the South did a pretty good job of shutting out um, word of really any kind of word that was critical of slavery. That was a big effort um, of the Southern states and Southern politicians.
0: Right. So uh, jumping forward in the story, can you talk about how Lovejoy ultimately meets his demise and sort of what the, the kind of immediate um, reaction or, or, or aftermath was from the, the abolitionist community.
1: So over the course of maybe 16 months or so in Alton, Illinois, you know, things just go from bad to worse. He's greeted, as I mentioned before, by having his press broken on the riverbank. He gets a new one. Um, there's a quiet period, but then, you know, he starts up again with his anti-slavery columns, and um, and he is met by resistance, and sort of each time he's met by threats to to stop or or you know noisy requests to stop, he just gets more determined than ever that he's going to continue publishing. And he becomes a, so he starts off being this you know a minister, and he's he's he's, he's voicing this anti-slavery line, but that position becomes really one um, part in, and part and parcel. Uh, of a larger uh, message of press freedom, they become really the, the same. He 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 braids these two positions together: anti-slavery and freedom of the press. And so he gets you know harassed more, uh, attacked in a in a, in a in his wife's family's house, um, you know threatened with being tarred and feathered on the road. It, it just it just keeps it just continues on, and he never um, he Relents. He just he just keeps uh, publishing. Ultimately, um, he's lost three presses by late 1837, and orders a fourth press after a bunch of community meetings and everybody's trying to find a way out of this mess. And he's just determined to take this to the to the end if if necessary. And this remember a man who was married. He had a a child and. Another child on the way, uh, and 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 yet he was willing to um, to continue to stand up. The fourth press is delivered um, from a boat, a river boat, spirited into a warehouse of a friend of his, and guarded by a couple dozen uh, of Lovejoy's friends and other people. They managed to round up, and they were, you know, they they were they were armed inside that warehouse. They had muskets and. Uh, and they were ready to defend this, um, this press, you know, at the, at the expense of their lives. The mob um, organized that had already been on the lookout for this press organizes and um, uh, a bunch of them amass outside the warehouse. The crowd grows, the, you know, whisk, much whiskey is drunk <laughs> during mm-hmm. this during this episode. Um, people are armed. And then rocks are thrown, then gunshots are fired, and pretty soon you've got an all-out riot going on in and around this warehouse. Um, the, the, the crowd has, is demanding that, that Lovejoy and his people give up the press. They refuse to. Uh, the, the mob begins to um, set the warehouse on fire. So now Lovejoy and his people are besieged inside a, a burning building, and he emerges from a door um, on one end of the warehouse, armed, um, to um, sort of clear the person who's setting fire to the um, to the roof on a ladder. But as Lovejoy comes out of his out of his uh, building or out of his friend's building, the warehouse, uh, he's he's um, hit with multiple gunshots uh, fired by uh, at least two uh, gunmen were part of the mob who station themselves outside the door. He stumbles back inside the warehouse, recognizes that he's been hit, and falls dead um, inside the warehouse. His friends um, surrender at that point. It's obvious that this thing has gone far enough, and the um, the crowd outside, you know, storms the uh, warehouse. They get the press that they were looking for, and they and they smash it to bits. And Lovejoy is, you know, converted in a sense from this, you know, fairly obscure figure out on the frontier, fighting a losing battle, I suppose, um, on his own to becoming a, a martyr. Um, he is, he is um, you know, becomes the, the, really the first martyr to the free press in America. Mm-hmm. And in the North, it really triggers a reaction that was quite emotional. People were horrified that uh, a newspaper editor would be would be killed um, for for the words that he was writing and it was a bit of a wake-up call for northerners that the rights that they and I'm talking about white northerners now um, the rights that they took for granted or assumed that they held were 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 being threatened by the South as well by this idea that one can't Speak out against slavery that there were some limits to the freedom of speech in the press that they believed were you know ironclad in the first amendment so it mobilized people um, it it sort of took a bit of the um, the demon um, coloration off of the um, abolitionist movement it widened it a bit mm-hmm. um, and, and most of all i I would say that it served to um, expand or, or promote a, a modern view of what journalism and the press should be in America, which is to say a place where you can write and publish unpopular views. And that's part of the democratic mm-hmm. um, discourse. That's part of what we do.
0: Yeah. Did, did the paper continue on after Lovejoy's
1: death? It, it 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 didn't really. It it there were some faltering attempts to, to save it, but it, it was it was done. Yeah. It was it was gone. So yeah. um, if the if if the mob wanted to, you know, shut Lovejoy up, they they did. If they wanted to end his newspaper, they did. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, he, he becomes this, this symbol, um, which maybe has more power than than he did as a newspaper editor.
0: Yeah. And there, there were other people watching. I, I think you, you mentioned at the end of the book that uh, Abraham Lincoln was in the Illinois legislature at this yeah. time. And so, you know, he's seeing it. Of course, of course, Alton becomes the site of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Right. So it right. seems like it might also be sort of a, an early marker for the, the, the larger run up to the, the Civil War.
1: Yeah. Lincoln takes note of it and, and laments that, the you know, that a newspaper editor could be killed and presses thrown in the in the in the river. In um, a fairly eloquent passage, um, John Quincy Adams, the former president, who was at the time a, a congress a congressman from Massachusetts, you know, says this is a Lovejoy's killing was like an earthquake, you know, across the country that it that it you know it struck with that much force. That was, you know, clearly um, some hyperbole. It didn't really mobilize the the country, um, you know, against. Slavery—that would have to come later, and only war would end that. But, mm-hmm. but it 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 really um, it really made an impact, and it and it 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 made Lovejoy into um, a real uh, powerful symbol for press right. freedom.
0: Right. So the other, the other uh, aspect, thinking about, you know, press during Lovejoy's time and, and what has, has evolved since, and you, you, you talk a little bit about this in the book, there's this, as, as you said, there was this very, it was a, it was a partisan press, you know, newspapers had, had a particular point of, of view. And then, of course, we, that, that, that has evolved into what, we, what we've come to know as, as objective journalism and now there's some within the academy and, and within parts of, of the, the profession saying that maybe it's time to go back to a more partisan press model. So knowing what you know about Lovejoy's time and your your own experience of course with the the Los Angeles Times what do you think about that or you know where
1: where do you sort of see things going moving forward well i i, I can see that um, and it, it is a point that not, it is an, it was an observation that i made to my students in china at the time that what you are seeing is a is a kind of a return to that era i mean the the the, the sources of information I don't, I don't know that i would call all of them journalism because Journalism to me has a specific meaning, and it requires, you know, people to be involved in the um, practice of verification for one thing, which is a very important to me, a very important ingredient, a very important requirement. Uh, but you can see that um, the at least the American audience for media is is certainly being uh, fragmented by ideology and by, you know, bipartisan beliefs. I'm, I guess, an old school type in that I continue to believe that our democracy is best served by, you know, a free and independent press, obviously, um, but one where, you know, you can, you can depend on the, the, the fact that the information has been verified, and I and 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 that there has been a great deal of care taken to make sure that this is complete and um, and thorough and um, you know and free of of, of bias. I'm um, I'm I'm just not. I I just don't think I'll ever give up on that belief. Right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, um, fair enough. It is. Uh, I think it will, it will be a debate for years, if not longer, to come in the in the industry moving forward.
1: I don't know that you um, know. When you look back on the time of the partisan press, I'm not sure that anybody would necessarily uh, consider that a golden age of American journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, there there was there was a lot of meanness. There was a lot of um, kind of gratuitous just sort of hurling of insult and all that. But um, while it was important that the country go through that. Stage in order to, you know, solidify what it wanted as a press. I don't think that we, you know, pine for those days.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's a completely different media landscape too, with social media and a whole other thing. We could spend another hour talking about that. Yeah. But, um, so Ken, if uh, if folks, I, I certainly hope that they'll read your book and and learn more about Lovejoy's story. Um, are there are there other resources uh, you would, would recommend for folks who want to learn more about journalism during this this kind of abolitionist era?
1: Um, there's a, a, a character in the book who's a kind of a, he's kind of a co-star um, and his name is James Burney. And I, I struggled, I'll have to say, as, as in writing the book with how, how big a part to give him, because he's a terrific character and he was doing the same thing Lovejoy was doing, but he was doing it in Cincinnati. Mm. And um, he ends up becoming a rather interesting character in in a different way, in that he survives some of the same kinds of attacks that Lovejoy uh, didn't survive. And he goes on to become um, a, politi- a political figure. He takes his he takes his anti slavery activism into into politics. He runs for president twice, and he may have spoiled the election. Uh, um, in, in 1844, I mean, he may have been, he may have been a spoiler in, in, in uh, as a third-party candidate, and I think so. I think that you know, Bernie's a great story um, to look into, and he's a, he's a, he's evidence that there were people at the time. Um, needless to say, um, William Lloyd Garrison is probably the most f- famous during Lovejoy's time. Later, uh, Frederick Douglass is, you know, is you know, is absolutely um, uh, well deserved for all the praise that you know he and attention he gets. he wasn't yet active as an editor during Lovejoy's time. But in the eighteen, you know, thirties there were other editors who were trying to use newspapers to fight against this pernicious institution of slavery. And um, I think it's a pretty rich field. I I uh, was pleased to see, as a storyteller, that the Lovejoy story hadn't been told for quite a long time, and had not been told in a in a modern way. That I wanted to tell it. It's it, I think it's um, it reads like a modern day narrative story, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and so Lovejoy, you know, has been overlooked for a long, long time. But uh, I think he. He deserves the attention and there are other editors out there who deserve the same kind of, um, praise and, um, and support.
0: Yeah. And there, you're, you're right. There are so many other characters and, and, and elements that we did not get to, to talk to, um, or to, to talk about today, but I, I hope folks will, will check them out. Um, what, what's next for you, Ken? What else are, are you working on?
1: Uh, well, I'm, I'm really just working on raising attention to this uh. story and, uh, Um, you know, hoping that people will see in Lovejoy's story a reason to care about uh, the climate that journalists face now. You asked me earlier about resources. I think some of the resources that I would hope people would look into are those having to do with the current, um, you know, climate of press freedom. The Committee to Protect Journalists is, is one, you know. Um, There are various press freedom organizations out there that put out really good material and keep track of the kinds of attacks on the press that we've seen in recent years. Uh, And those are really, you know, really great resources. I hope people check those out, you know, you know, as as they're reading uh, as they're reading the first of (laughs) fall.
0: Yeah, Great. Well, right. Well, we will uh, leave it there. And and again, uh, Ken's book is called First to Fall Elijah Lovejoy and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery, which is out now from Pegasus Books. Ken, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: It was really my pleasure. Thanks a lot.